Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Doug Lowen, a professor of public policy and sociology at UNC Chapel Hill, joins us to discuss residential mobility, academic achievement, and charter schools. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber reports on a new study investigating how school facilities funding impacts test scores and housing prices. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. Boring. I want a new athletic field. You're telling me we have to invest in, like, basic health and safety? (laughs) What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Doug Lowen. Doug, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Doug is a professor of public policy and sociology at UNC Chapel Hill. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah, well, excited to have you both on. And you have both been busy working on a study by Doug that is out this week from Fordham called New Home, Same School, Charter Schools and Residentially Mobile Students. Let's talk about it on Ed Reform Update. All right, Doug. So this study is looking at this question of residential mobility as well as school mobility. Basically, this question about when a family's move, which sometimes, you know, if we're talking about low income families is not always something they particularly want to do. Uh, Are they able to keep their kids at the same school? You have a great data set from North Carolina. We're able to dig into this question. So let's start here. First of all, tell us a little bit about this issue of mobility. Does it, uh, for example, strike students differently depending on their race or socioeconomic status? Yeah, for sure. Um, Low-income students, renters, uh, students of color are all more likely to change schools. So that's really the the population that we have to be most concerned about. And they also tend to, those same populations tend to have uh, worse outcome in schools. Right, uh, right. And and so part of the question here is whether uh, this issue around mobility, changing schools a lot, again, which could be connected to changing homes, given that in our education system, of course, the real estate market plays a big role in figuring out where kids go to school, if that's a factor when we're looking at these broader achievement gaps. So, I mean, first of all, how, I mean, does does this happen to a lot of kids when we're talking about changing school or changing uh, houses in a given year? Yeah, well, residential mobility actually has been going down for about a decade or so. um, And this is even before the pandemic. The figure I always remember before I did this study was one in five people move residences. That's just not true anymore. It's about one in 10. And I also thought the connection between residential mobility and school mobility was stronger. Um, So before I did this study and before I read a lot of the prior research, you know, I was I, I thought that they would be more strongly connected. But in fact, about one in three students who move residences also change schools. So the majority of kids who change residences actually don't change schools. And it's really the combination of residential mobility and school mobility, which is probably related to the distance of the move, in other words, a longer distance of the move, that that is the harmful thing. 
So if you're changing uh, homes, but it's in the same basically neighborhood, you're in the same catchment zone for your traditional public school, you get to stay in that school. And I assume also some school districts try to be flexible that even if you move out of the catchment zone, uh, they give parents an option to try to keep their kids at the same school because they understand that, that school mobility is, is problematic. That's right. And some districts have great open enrollment programs, some don't. And some you know, big urban districts have lots of kids going to magnet schools and things like that. But uh, that's not the norm, I would say, across the country. That's more of an urban thing. Right. Okay. And then here's another wrinkle is now with public charter schools, basically having no catchment zone or having very large ones, if they do have them, uh, at least provides the possibility that kids could stay at a charter school, even if their kids, if their families are moving around. So in North Carolina, what did you find? Is that, is that the case? Yeah. Essentially being in a charter school allows a student to keep their school enrollment the same if their residence changes. And in North Carolina, for students enrolled in charter schools, I, I said a minute ago that the the chance that a traditional public school student will change schools if they change if they're a residentially mobile student, that's one in three. For a charter school student, it's one in four. So it's a lower probability. There's still plenty of kids in charters who, you know, move a long distance and and that commute is just not feasible for the family. But I will say that lots of families are willing to drive a, a fair distance, willing and able to uh, travel a fair distance to go to their charter school. All right. And, and final question, and then I want to get David in here because I know he's got lots of things on his mind about this, is to say, you know, why, why does this matter? I mean, the, the hypothesis is maybe this is related to student achievement and other outcomes. What, what did you find in North Carolina? Yeah, I mean, there is generally a negative effect. Uh, mobility on test score achievement and a positive effect on absences and uh, suspensions for students who are residentially mobile. But again, the effects are pretty small for kids who change residences only and are larger when residential mobility is combined with school mobility. Okay. All right. So, so for Policymakers and for educators, the message is if if uh, you've got kids who are mobile in terms of changing homes, do what you can to keep them in the same school. Public charter schools are one way to do that, but not the only way to do that. David, what, what do you think uh, as you've worked on this study for the last uh, well, long while? What are some of the issues that pop up in your mind? Well, first of all, let me just say, Doug has done the lion's share of the work here. But I will say that when we were first noodling the study and considering doing it, part of the reason I wanted to do it was the growing realization that this was an issue that I'd never really focused on, right? Your typical think tank president or associate director of research has never had the experience of being evicted and then simultaneously being forced to change middle schools. It's just not something that is within our realm of experience. And yet it's something that happens across the country, literally, you know, every, probably every day, at least once. And, you know, I feel like this is the flip side of the transportation problem, right? We all know that school choice is creating some challenges for transportation systems, right? But the flip side of that is that it's actually solving some housing related issues. Um, and what we wanted to do in the study is uh, start to quantify that, right? And actually test this sort of hypothesis that we had, which was that, you know, enrolling in a school that was not associated with an attendance zone, right, um, would would sort of mitigate 
you know, the, the, the costs that are associated with um, eviction or sort of involuntary changes in residence. And broadly speaking, I think um, we were able to confirm that hypothesis, although I will say uh, it's a very difficult issue to study. And uh, even doing what I was able to do here involved just mountains and mountains uh, of work. Yeah, no, thank you, Doug, for all that incredible work you did on, and, and the math that goes way over my head, uh, especially, again, to try to tease out uh, the effects of these different kinds of moves, right? The school move, the residential move, and then when they are combined. Can we talk a little bit about North Carolina? You know, people in our world of education reform, they probably think of North Carolina as a little bit of a strange state in terms of charter schools. Uh, you know, for example, most or many states really have focused their charter school activity on big urban areas. North Carolina, it's more spread out. You know, most uh, many states, most of the kids in charter schools are kids of color. Uh, in North Carolina, uh, you know, it's more of a mix. So, and, and of course, I don't know anything about the housing system and policies in North Carolina versus other places. So I'm just curious. I mean, what, when we study a place like North Carolina, do we have a sense of how typical it is compared to some of these other places or how this might be playing out across the country? Well, I don't know if there is a typical um, across states, because there's a lot of variation across states in the composition of the charter school sector. Um, you're right that certainly in many states, especially in the upper Midwest and then the Northeast, you have charter sectors with disproportionate shares of students of color and low-income children. There are plenty of charter schools in high-income neighborhoods, and many of those are in kind of more affluent suburban areas, exurban areas. So that's disproportionate. And I, I want to be really clear. I'm not saying that all charter schools are in these areas in North Carolina. It's just that there are many more compared to other states. Now, did I do that same kind of analysis in every other state? No, that would be impossible because I need address data for all charter school students and I don't have that. So I looked at CCD data for the same time period and North Carolina is an outlier when it comes to percent white and percent of students on free or reduced price lunch, as flawed as that measure might be. Um, so, you know, many fewer poor students in North Carolina and many more white students in North Carolina. You know, it's also interesting that North Carolina is one of these mid-Atlantic or southern states that have countywide school systems, right? And and I do wonder if those countywide systems maybe are more able to keep kids in the traditional public schools you know, in the same school, even when they move residences, because uh, again, kids aren't crossing the district lines as much, you know, they, uh, it might be easier to do inter-district or, or intra-district choice, you know, versus say, I don't know, a metropolitan Boston, where there's a bunch of tiny little school districts. And so, you know, almost every time you move, you're going to cross some kind of real boundary, making it harder. Yeah. So those inter, you know, the, the between district uh, transfers, happen, but I think there's a lot more paperwork involved. And, uh, but still there's catchment, you know, school catchment areas within districts. And, you know, if you cross one of those, you know, you have to get special permission to stay, um, you know, if you've, if you've moved residences. I don't know if this is the right time to, to mention it, but we did some other work that showed that about one in five charter school students cross district lines to go to their charter school. So their home residence is in District A and they go to a charter school, which is in District B. Um, of course, when I say District A and District B, I mean 
the traditional public school district. Charter schools in North Carolina are their own districts, so um, it doesn't matter to them, but it does matter to the districts because there's the local share of school finance, <laughs> of school revenue that has to go uh, from District A to District B. And so there's a whole system of writing checks that goes back and forth between these districts, which is kind of interesting and news to me. And that was the project that I think David saw um, Kyle Abbott presenting at a conference and said, what, you guys have addresses and this is really weird. What, you know, that opens up new avenues uh, for investigation when you have address data. Well, this sounds like a good time to say we should get more research done like this in other states too. All right. Again, Doug Lowen, the author of New Home, Same School, Charter Schools, and Residentially Mobile Students. Check it out at the Fordham Institute's website. Doug, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So I, I feel like I should say happy holidays to everybody again, because, you know, uh, this this past weekend, we had a holiday party that had been rescheduled from December because of, of COVID. And we decided that it was, you know, you know, like when you're at a U.S. embassy, you're officially on American soil. So we decided that this party, even though it was in January, it was actually December. So, you know, anybody doing dry January or, you know, New Year's resolution diets, they didn't have to follow them. I love that rule. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty good. <laughs> Friend of mine was was dressed like Elf on the Shelf. It it was a real throwback. Oh, was this your idea, Mike? Just curious. Uh, well, it was it was our holiday party with some good friends that that we do every year. But I mean, this idea of having it be January not well, like yeah, because uh, you know we were hosting the party and I was afraid nobody was going to have a drink, you know, because it's January. <laughs> hey, what you got for us this week? Uh, we got a study that examines how school facilities funding impacts test scores and house prices. So anyhow, um, I like this one because it was a really creative study. Um, and it's something that adds new nuance to other studies that are out there. So I'll explain. Uh, just some context first. Roughly three quarters of capital outlays are funded locally with state aid kicking in less than 30% of funds for capital projects on average and less than 5% in about half of states. And then there's been all of this, including from us, all of this discussion of these state-level finance reforms that have led to more equal and progressive distribution of spending um, across school districts, but the distribution of capital outlays didn't follow that pattern. That remains unequal. OK, so that's not what we're talking about. when We talk about all those other state level finance reforms that have become more uh, progressive. All right. In most states, capital outlays are primarily funding funded using bonds issued by each school district. That's in part because districts allocate just about 10 percent of their budget each year to capital outlays. Bonds just I'm assuming our listeners know this, but they must be approved by voters and local referenda. They're usually held during a primary or general election, and if passed, they're repaid with revenues from local property taxes. The studies by Julian LaFortune and colleagues, really um, complicated study, but I'm, I did my best. Uh, it identifies which investments in school facilities help students and are valued by homeowners. So it's looking at like a more fine grain level of facilities than we've had before. To estimate the effect of bond passage, they compile a data set with information on school bond referendum, so they have the text of the actual ballot, uh, student test scores and house prices for 29 states. 
Their data set covers approximately 14,000 bond elections in 29 states and over 10,000 districts, enrolling about 71% of all students in the U.S. They use a CETA database and data from state departments to gather district-level test score averages, ultimately ending up with scores from 2003 to 2019 for nearly all states, and as early as 1994 for some of those 29 states that are included. They use the home price index data at the centrist track level. They map those to 2010 school district boundaries, and then they calculate the average house price index for each school district and year. That sounds like a lot. It's because it is. Uh, they set out to estimate the causal effect of bond authorization on scores and house prices, allowing the effect to be dynamic over time. So they need to just try to bear with me. They need to compare the treaty districts, which those, you know, those are the ones that succeed in authorizing that bond, and the control districts that propose a bond in the same year but fail to authorize it. But since these school districts that succeed are different from those that don't in unobservable ways, and since they want to avoid comparing uh, districts that become treated at a later time, meaning later on they got a bond to succeed, they exploit variation from close bond elections with staggered timing. So that means they're comparing districts that barely authorize a bond in a given year or cohort with districts that also propose a bond in the same cohort, but fail to authorize it and never authorize any bonds in the future. And then they control for cohort fixed effects. Whew. Then they categorize spending into eight categories. Classroom construction and renovation, HVAC, technology and IT, athletic facilities, and more because they've also coded the text of the bond. Whew. You guys with me so far? Can I go on with results? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. I think that was the best. I get the idea. This was a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Okay. They show that increased school capital funding, I mean, school capital spending, raises both test scores and housing prices on average, specifically in districts that marginally approve a bond proposal. Test scores are 0.04 standard deviation higher on average one to four years after the bond election, 0.08 standard deviation higher five to eight years afterwards, and 0.07 standard deviation higher nine to 12 years after relative to the districts that marginally reject it. Bond approval also generates increases in housing prices by 7%, five to eight years after a bond election in the average district. But then they go digging into those averages and they find that the impacts vary widely across types of projects and types of districts. Um, this is what, what was kind of interesting even more. Spending on basic infrastructure or upgrades so the HVA system, the plumbing, the furnaces, the roofs, that kind of stuff, or on the removal of pollutants, which, okay, it's hard to believe we still have pollutants. Uh, but anyway, that raises test scores, but not house prices, possibly because those things are not visible to homeowners without school-aged kids. Conversely, spending on athletic facilities or construction of new classroom space raises house prices, but not test scores. Oh, there it is. <laughs> disadvantaged, disadvantaged districts also completely drive the differences. They benefit much more from capital spending in part because they've spent less on it in the past and they have larger bond amounts. In high SES districts, test scores remain unchanged post-bond election and the effect on house prices is non-significant. So, not a shocker, but uh, basically what they're saying is targeting capital improvement to low-income students 
and using it on these basic infrastructure type things has the most potential to gen- to generate boost to achievement. Boring. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> I want a new athletic field, right? I mean, <laughs> you're telling me we have to invest in like basic health and safety and that sort of thing. <laughs> I think the political incentives are just so frustrating, right? All right. So let, let's unpack this. Okay. So it, it does seem to make sense based on other findings, right? That things like HVAC, the air quality matters. At least you can, you know, find, detect some differences. I would imagine a leaky roof, you know, would be a distraction to learning. So is that what we think is going on here? Or is it possible that after you make these improvements, does that lead to some... I don't know, gentrification, that there's more higher income kids that might come into those neighborhoods or is... So, good question, Mike. They did look at the composition of the kids after these uh, bond referendum were passed and they found it had small difference. I mean, it made a small impact, but not enough to explain the results that I just laid out for you. So it was definitely something they looked into, but it wasn't the big driver. Yeah. No. And and you would think that, the, again, stuff that's maybe invisible to see, like a new roof, it'd be, I don't know, be, it'd be interesting if that was became a selling point, you know, to people moving in. You'd have to be a pretty savvy real estate agent, it seems like, to think, to point out that, hey, the high school has a new roof. So <laughs> right. feel better about moving in here. Okay. I mean, I guess I'm just curious, and I don't want me to put you on a spot, but I mean, do we have a sense of how regressive spending still is in these, you know, in this particular category? Because I think the subtext you're right is that there's a loophole to the whole, to the conclusion that, you know, we've equalized spending, right? We may not have equalized this category of spending. Is that the subtext here? Yes, that's that's what I'm saying. That's what was unique and different about the study and and being able to, again, categorize the types of capital outlay projects like we just haven't seen that before. Yeah. And is that we think and we think that's because it's primarily driven by local tax dollars as opposed to state level funding or anything else. Right. That, that we don't have the data. Is that what you're saying, David? Well, no, just that the reason we haven't equalized it, right? I mean, is it, it sounds like is because it's mostly a, a local thing. Right, a local, right, where they have to have these bond referendum in the first place. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> right, though, uh, this goes way over my head, but isn't there, I thought that sometimes states and even the federal government have tried to do things through tax provisions, maybe, to make these sorts of bonds in high poverty areas be less expensive or more attractive to investors? Again, over my head. But I think there's been some efforts even here on the facilities front to try to equalize things or or at least uh, help those low property value places. I think that's true. You know, I know that, you know, some places have done a, um, you know, how much can they afford, right, based on their uh, property values and that sort of thing. So they try to you know, kick in more for areas that are, you know, can can do less of a match, for instance. Yeah. And again, these bond markets, you know, there's, there's all kinds of tax provisions and stuff. Uh, you know, I, I do think it's important to point out for wealthy districts, right? Uh, hey, people, you know, if you're trying to make the case for your bond referendum for your new football field or your new whatever, uh, you're not going to be able to use this study to say that it's going to lead to more student learning. I mean, I bet we're going to see that anyways. Right. But but it's important to say, look, if you're already rich and you've already got nice facilities, spending more on new facilities is not going to boost learning anymore. Right. Not in not in those districts. Not in those districts. All right. Just like an aside, Mike, you know, I mean, I taught anecdote warning 
Um, I taught in a high poverty school with, um, you know, with no, a this was a long time ago, obviously, but no AC, you know, we had to open the windows. We had to turn the lights off when it was hot. The kids were allowed to have, you know, a jug of water on their desk. And I do think it does send the implicit message that, you know, you're the, the school district isn't valuing the kids if, you know, to if they're, you know, learning in conditions like these. So, you know, I'm just saying um, that it, it does send a message sometimes if we don't put the money into, into the school building. I mean, it's not a direct, you know, uh, especially in these high districts, it's not going to cause learning to go up, but it does send a, a message, I think, to kids, which is also important to think about. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that one. All right. We will have to leave it there. Thank you, Amber. That was a good one. And like David said, a lot of work. But until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.